0: You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on the Legal Talk Network. This is Jim Calloway, director of the Oklahoma Bar Association's Management Assistance Program. And with me, I have Joe Patrice of Above the Law. Hello, Joe. Hey, how are you? This is my first time co-hosting with Joe, so uh, we're looking forward to this. Oh, yeah, so this is going to be a disaster. You just know it. Okay, I'm (laughs) planning for that as we start. Well, we're here to cover the uh, mid-year meeting and its highlights, but today we have a special uh, couple of guests that I'm looking forward to hearing from because they're going to talk about a topic I know precious little about. Uh, We have with us Beth Kaufman of Schumann-Updike and Kaufman of New York City and Lawrence Pilgrim of Fenwick and West from San Francisco. Their topic is the Rules Roadshow, Amendments to the Rules of federal civil procedure. and Whereas a non-lawyer, that might not sound like an exciting topic. In our legal community, that's a pretty big thing. So why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about your uh, practice and what you do before we get into the meat of the conversation, starting with Lawrence.
1: Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you guys for covering this. I'm a civil practitioner, litigator. Do I IP litigation in San Francisco at the firm of Fenwick and West. Been doing this for a long time, and have done it long enough that they're making me chair of the sectional litigation next year. So I'm now the chair elect. Beth is one of the true leaders of the Rules Roadshow, and I'm happy to be here with her. Beth.
2: Hi, Jim. Nice to be here. I practice in New York, as you said, at what is now a women-owned firm. We're very proud of that. It's a certified women-owned firm. We do litigation of all types. I defend employment, products liability, toxic tort, commercial litigation. And I've been very involved in the ABA, particularly the section of litigation. The Rules Roadshow Project has been absolutely the best thing I've ever done. It's really been a lot of fun going around the country and teaching lawyers and judges and their law clerks all about the rules amendments and the real opportunity we have to change the way we practice law. Well, Beth,
0: before we get started the substance, how many stops have we had on the Rules Roadshow?
2: We have done nine uh, roadshows so far. We have four more to go, and we're adding cities as we speak. We hope to do it in about three more cities, I think. And by that point, I think we'll have educated uh, somewhere around 2,000 lawyers and judges.
0: Well, Lawrence, let's start with some basic information. Many of the uh, lawyers here are well familiar with the rules, but may have forgotten the process and the uh, personnel involved in uh, how amendments take place. How does that happen? So uh, there is an act of the legislature that creates this process, and it says
1: that the Judicial Conference of the United States Advisory Committee on the Civil Rules considers and promulgates potential changes to the rules these ideas can come from anywhere in the bar Uh, in this case the rules changes came out of a symposium at Duke University in 2010 and over the next four years there were a number of comment period edits Uh, 2,000 people provided input into the process at one point in the public comments period And uh, in the spring of last year, the United States Supreme Court uh, approved the rules that the advisory committee had put forward. When Congress failed to reject those uh, rules proposals in the fall, they became effective December 1, 2015. Long process to get where we are.
0: Well, that's very interesting. Beth, do you have anything more to add on the uh, process or the reaction of the bar when the rules came into effect? I'm sure rather suddenly to many of the practicing lawyers.
2: Well, the practicing lawyers, even now, here we are in February, are still using those old-fashioned words, reasonably calculated as opposed to proportional to discovery. So I think a lot of people don't know about them. They're not really focusing on them. And part of our job is to educate them. But the other part of our job is to teach them how to really make use of them so that they can um, keep costs down, get to the finish line, and achieve justice sooner rather than later, and also teach judges what they need to do to properly manage cases under this new rubric.
3: You say still using reasonably calculated as opposed to proportionality. One thing that you said before we got started was that a subtitle you use for your show is goodbye reasonably calculated, hello proportionality. So what's the substantive difference between these terms?
2: Well, I think the substantive difference is that it's very focused. The the rules now are very focused on what your claims are, what the case is about, what is at issue. Discovery probably got to be a little bit too broad in some cases, not every case, but in some cases, because what might be reasonably calculated to um, lead to admissible evidence may not necessarily be directly governed by the claims and defenses in the case. So that is one key difference. And when you're responding to discovery requests and you're fashioning your discovery plan, the focus now is really on What you need and how you can get it in a way that's going to be proportional to what's at stake in your case. That's not only money proportional, it's proportional to the scope of the issues. And that's actually a very important question that we've been getting at every Rules Roadshow. What, proportion- what does proportional mean? Does the fact that my case only seeks maybe nominal damages, but a very important principle of law is at issue, does that mean that I get less discovery? And the answer to that clearly is no. It's not just governed by how much money is at stake.
0: Well, Lawrence, I know one of the criticisms of uh, as we moved into e-discovery was the expense of litigation, and there were many commentators that said we've made litigation a sport for the rich because uh, some of your garden variety cases uh, can't really uh, uh, handle the uh, massive discovery required. From what I'm hearing from Beth, uh, it seems to indicate that maybe we're uh, taking a step back from that and heading in a more positive direction. I think you hit the nail on the
1: head. So the criticism of litigation is it costs too much, it takes too long and that means people can't get justice. And what what these rules really did was they recognized that just because information is relevant is now too broad a measure for discovery. We can't digest all the data that exists. Too much is happening. It's coming too fast. We have to prioritize, and we have to focus on what matters for the case. Um, And that's why I think The chief justice in particular has put a lot of weight behind these rules. He devoted his entire year-end report for 2015, Chief Justice Roberts, to these rules amendments on the premise that uh, these can really make a difference in moving the needle, in making litigation more effective, in making uh, all that we do tend towards justice instead of tend towards delay. And we want to go out there and we want to help people look at these rules and say, yes, this is a place that we can actually make change
3: uh, for the first time in a long time in how Discovery has been run. Well, let's talk about ways you can get in trouble or not get in trouble under these rules. So what's going on with the standards of where, how you get slapped on the wrist uh, when you do something wrong?
1: So the the first way you're going to get in trouble is you're going to be embarrassed if you don't know the new rules. And if you say, I want this because it's reasonably calculated to lead to the discovery of admissible evidence, you are going to be laughed out of court. And um, that's the first way you're going to get in trouble is just by being completely false um, in your interpretation of the rules. So the the second um, way that you are going to get in trouble is uh, if you uh, don't abandon the old boilerplate that we've been using in responding to discovery because it's been outlawed by the new rules. Rule 34 says you have to give specific objections and you have to say if you're withholding information and you have to say the date you're going to give it. And under the current rules, uh, responses to discovery have uh, been more focused on obfuscation than clarity. Uh, you're going to get in trouble if you do that. And I think a, a third way that you can get in serious trouble um, is if you... Don't pay attention to preservation of evidence. You're going to not be uh, slapped on the risk for mere mistakes, but anyone who intentionally deletes um, or fails to preserve evidence in order to deprive their opponent of the use of that evidence uh, is subject to immediate terminating sanctions.
0: Well, and I haven't tried a case for many years, but I know as a former litigator, a spoliation instruction to a jury is one of the most terrifying things that can happen in litigation.
1: Yeah, and what these rules do is they say you can't give that spoliation instruction just for a mistake. You can give it if it's intentional and intended to deprive
0: the other side. Beth, why don't you, uh, I want to make sure we cover all of the high points, and I don't know all of the high points, so why don't you tell us some of the uh, major things you're familiar with in the rules that are important?
2: Uh, Interestingly, and I I think some people will be surprised at this, what we're hearing at many of the roadshows from um, corporate in-house lawyers is that the rules actually will require them in some instances to front load expense. So it's not necessarily going to save them money in discovery, maybe in the long run it will. But if you're a modest-sized company, a medium-sized company, and you don't know what you have, the specificity required in responding to Rule 34 requests will now require you to figure out what you have. You also can not propose some of the more interesting techniques that we've talked about at the roadshows, such as bifurcating or trifurcating issues so that you don't do all of your discovery right, away. You just focus on the key issues in the case and do the discovery associated with those first because they may be dispositive. You may never have to get to the larger discovery or sequencing discovery, agreeing that you're going to do certain witnesses, produce certain documents, and have the right to come back and seek more. If you're a smaller company and you haven't invested in knowing what you have, the cost of figuring out how you shape that plan and how you sequence discovery is going to be significant up front. Even responding to a Rule 34 request for some companies will be, uh, will be more significant and substantial than it has been in the past.
1: There's a lot of the rules that really speed things up, that require, uh, that permit uh, earlier document requests that required the specific responses to them. And so you're going to have to get on your horse and ride as a defendant in these cases in order to figure out what's coming at you in order to be able to respond to it. And I I think the other point that Beth made that I agree so much with is that this is about trying to figure out how to expeditiously run a case. The objective um, is not to have less justice, but to take less expense and cost. And what that means is we have to do discovery smarter and we have to identify what we really need, and we have to identify what's going to short-circuit a case by getting it to settlement or by getting the parties what they need to know in order to better assess their position. And that requires judicial management, which is one of the key uh, legs of the stool on which these amendments stand. There are three legs. One is proportionality. The committee will tell you the second is case management, where judges actually get involved and decide how to run a case to make it resolve quick. And the third is cooperation of the parties. And you may say, you're already looking at me like you're going to have cooperation among litigators. And what the chief justice says is, uh, we are, we need to have a culture change here because our judicial system is going to depend on it. I believe that the legitimacy of our system requires that we not be so expensive that we can't get justice. And that means that we're going to have to start cooperating or we're going to drive ourselves ultimately. Um, out of the place of credibility
0: that we want the litigation process to be. It sounds like to me that the rules are trying to make an attempt to more balance our responsibilities as an advocate for our client, but also as an officer of the court.
2: And that was actually, Jim, uh, one of the hallmarks of the rules-making process, because the people involved on the advisory committee in bringing this to fruition did not race through this process, as Lawrence said earlier. They brought together the plaintiff's bar, the defense bar, in-house counsel, and the judiciary to fashion rules that would work for everyone. No plaintiff's lawyer wants to spend a lot of money out of his own pocket on a case that's not going to end up being successful. Hopefully, they will be able to assess that upfront and know what they need and what they don't need in discovery. The old notion that you just send out broad-based discovery requests, take as many depositions as the court will allow, hoping you're going to find a couple of little kernels of evidence that you can use in your case is not something that the plaintiff's bar wants to be doing any, any longer either. So I think that there has been general acceptance that these can help control costs on both sides of the V.
3: As you say all these things, uh, I, my mind is now just going off on tangents, but I, I'm interested in if you have any thoughts on this. This move towards proportionality, we've had over the last couple of years, especially with big law and big institutional clients, a move towards these e-discovery companies uh, that hire thousands of contract attorneys to grind through a bunch of documents. Now that we're, if we really are moving towards a more proportional system, does it you think there's going to be any impact on that industry, some kind of clawing it back from where it currently is?
2: I actually think we're going to get better work product out of those vendors because I think that there will be a cooperative effort to really narrow search terms. Right now, search terms are very general. So there's a a tremendous amount of data being produced and collected, and then that has to be reviewed. And the first pass review generally is done by the e-discovery vendor. And it's a question of how good the people are who they hire. Um, It's become impossible, really, for law firms to do all of that discovery themselves. It's just too huge. So if it's a narrowly focused set of search terms and we have a smaller universe, at least initially, not perhaps forever, but initially, to be reviewed, maybe we're going to get better results from the discovery process and the document review process.
0: Lawrence, what's another uh, big change in the rules that we haven't yet covered yet? I think that the the judicial management part of
1: this is actually an element that is where the difference can be made. So if the courts become involved, and these rules don't require, but they recommend an in-person conference at the beginning for courts to actually sink their teeth into what the case is about, roll up their sleeves and try to direct where the parties are going to go. Um, That happened sooner, 30 days sooner than it did under the old rules. So this is more towards the front-loading that Beth was talking about, but on the judicial side. Um, And from, from my perspective, I want a good judge to be involved in managing my case and paying attention. To tell me, come back in six months with discovery done. Uh, puts a little pressure on me five and a half months from now, but it doesn't put that much on me right now, and it doesn't drive anyone towards figuring out in a way that reduces the cost to my client of what we need to get to. So um, that management aspect, I think, is a a big and it, 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 it part of this that is one of the reasons that we're going out and talking to judges uh, as well as talking to lawyers.
2: One of the um, one of the suggested procedures, and we're hearing this at every roadshow, is this notion of a pre-motion letter or pre-motion conference. Many courts employ that now. Some courts employ it for every single motion that is made in a case. This is civil cases. Some employ it for only non-substantive motions, so not a motion to dismiss, maybe a motion to dismiss, not a summary judgment motion, but all discovery motions. Um, That it, the judges who do that love it, whether you're a magistrate judge or a district judge, because it gives you the opportunity to bring the parties together and not waste a lot of time, court's time, lawyers' time, clients' money, in making motions that maybe can be resolved, particularly in the discovery area, by just talking reasonably with all parties present. And um, that, again, it's not mandated, but it's strongly recommended. We've heard over and over judges saying and teaching other judges the benefits of it
0: well that's very interesting and i appreciate the time you've given to this road show but this is a little different venue you're uh, worldwide if you will with a uh, podcast on the internet so do you have any uh, tips for lawyers who maybe won't be able to make one of your roadshows shows as to what they should do to help get themselves up to speed
2: There's an awful lot written about the rules, and there are many publications out there already that review them and give suggestions on how to best achieve the goals of the rules. So they'll certainly be able to find um, written material on the Internet and elsewhere, but they should also come come to a litigation section program because we revisit these at our annual meeting, our section annual meeting at the ABA annual and elsewhere.
1: A place that we've collected a lot of information is www.federalrulesamendments.org. That is the Roadshow's website, and we have a resources tab there with dozens of articles and publications. Um, Especially read the Federal Rules Committee's notes, advisory committee notes, which um, go into great detail. And I've got an article that's coming out of Litigation Magazine uh, in the spring edition that's called The Rules Have Changed, But Will We?, Because it really goes to the question of whether there's anything that is going to happen as a result of these very well-intentioned efforts. It's up to the lawyers. It's up to the judges. If we seize the moment, we could make a big change in the way litigation works. Or we could fall flat. The same as the two directions this interview could go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we're nearing the end of our time, so I, I think uh, I'll give each of you uh, one last chance to uh, cover something that we haven't done before or uh, or haven't talked about before or maybe that you'd want our listeners to know, uh, starting with Beth.
2: I think the emphasis on what you as a lawyer can do to make these rules successful and achieve the objectives that everybody has had for them is a really important one. Um, sometimes federal judges have said skeptically, judges are never gonna change, it's business as usual, there have been rules changes before, but these are really significant ones. And we as lawyers have the ability to make sure they're implemented so that they're effective and help us in our practice of uh, law.
0: Great, Lawrence? So.
1: I think this is actually a a once-in-a-decade opportunity to change the way litigation works. Chief Justice Roberts said, the amendments may not look like a big deal at first glance, but they are. They're a major stride towards a better federal court system, but they will achieve the goal of Rule 1, the just, speedy, and inexpensive determination of every action, only if the entire legal community, including the bench bar and the academy, step up to the challenge of making them rule change. Uh, That's that's our choice. That's what we get to do. That's where our clients will stand to lose or gain.
0: And we'll all uh, follow this with uh, interesting progress and notes on the progress because certainly uh, we depend on this system to uh, make our country work. Uh, well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. I, uh, first of all, want to thank Joe Patrice of Above the Law for joining me as a co-host. It's great. You're much better than my usual co-host, so there we go. (laughs) I appreciate that. And I want to thank uh, both uh, Beth Kaufman and Lawrence Pilgrim for uh, joining us for this podcast. It was our pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. If people wanted to reach out to you, are you uh, willing to give any contact information?
2: Sure. I'm at uh, Schumann, Updike, and Kaufman in New York, com
1: and I'm at Fenwick and West in San Francisco, lpulgrum
0: at fenwick.com. Look forward to hearing from people. This has been another edition of Special Reports from the Legal Talk Network. I'm Jim Calloway. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you, guys. <laughs> it's a little different, isn't it? But thank you. <laughs>